Today's podcast is brought to you by the Bioceuticals Integrative Oncology Workshop with Dr. Lee Zalchula. This full-day program will run between the dates of the 20th and 28th of July across Melbourne, Sydney, Gold Coast, Adelaide and Perth. The intensive class will explore key concepts and therapeutic integrative strategies for breast, prostate, colon and lung cancers, as well as how to support toxicities associated with conventional treatment. By the end of the day, you'll be able to confidently implement this important aspect of patient care into your clinical practice. For more information and to register for this critical event, please visit the Bioceuticals website at bioceuticals.com.au. This is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. And with me on the line all the way from Chicago in the USA is Dr. Lise Alshler. Now, Lise is the past president of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians and she's a founding board member of the Oncology Association of Naturopathic Physicians. She's received her naturopathic degree from Bastia University in 1994, is board certified in naturopathy, naturopathic oncology. And she's the co-author of one of my favourite books, The Definitive Guide to Cancer, An Integrative Approach to Prevention, Treatment and Healing. And she, along with her author, Carolyn Gazella, have created the 5tothriveplan.com and also she hosts a daily radio show called 5 to Thrive Live, which provides cancer patients with tools for living healthier lives. And you truly do, Lise. Welcome to FX Medicine. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. Lise, uh, um, you'll be lucky to get away with uh, talking for under 40 minutes today (laughs) because I could talk to you for hours about your expertise. (laughs) But but first, I, I wanted to go back in time to your beginnings because there's a few differences between Australia and the USA with regards to naturopathic training. So can you take us through, firstly, your naturopathic uh, education? Sure. So I went through pre-med at uh, university level and then uh, naturopathic training in the United States is a four-year postgraduate training program. There are currently six um, naturopathic medical schools in the United States that have federal recognition and accreditation. And that's important because that accreditation, of course, allows uh, students to qualify for federal loans and it also um, uh, establishes the, the level of the training as a postdoctoral degree program. So we all graduate with a doctorate in naturopathic medicine. And then currently, I believe I'm, there's about 18 states that license naturopathic doctors. And if we practice in one of those states, we, of course, have to pass a three-day uh, board exam or three-day licensing exam. Mm-hmm. And that qualifies us if we pass to apply for licensure, for, uh, which we pay for. And then um, we are licensed in that state. When we're licensed, we really function as a as a doctor would. So we have to maintain the requirements of our license, which means we have to have a certain number of hours of continuing medical education every year. We have to uh, pay for and, and retain medical malpractice insurance and, um, you know, some other uh 
qualifications for just being a practicing physician. Uh, there are some states, of course, that don't yet license naturopathic doctors, and there are naturopathic doctors practicing in those states. So those doctors typically retain a license somewhere else, and then they practice in that state with a very limited scope. So typically, a, a naturopathic doctor in the United States is able to diagnose and treat. We like naturopaths in Australia, prefer to use natural substances. So we start with lifestyle and diet and herbs and um, nutrients. But then in the States, we're also trained to use pharmaceuticals in some cases. And certain States, we actually have a very wide scope and can prescribe mm -hmm. quite a number of, of pharmaceutical medications and uh, do some minor office procedures. But when we're in a, a state that doesn't yet license, then we can't do any of that. And we really are restricted to doing more lifestyle-based therapies. And are there... So there's a bit of a range. We're still emerging. And are there restrictions with the types of medicines that you're allowed to prescribe? That depends on the state. Some states, as I said, have a very wide um, prescriptive authority, and that's because in those states, naturopathic doctors are helping to fill the healthcare needs in rural or disadvantaged areas, and they really need to have the ability to prescribe yeah. you know, pretty much anything a GP would. Um, other states, there's a more limited formulary that naturopathic doctors can prescribe. So it, it's very state-specific right now. Right. So tell us about your training. W what were the things that piqued your interest throughout your education, throughout your course? Oh, gosh, so many. But, um, you know, I think really fundamental. I, I was very focused on botanical medicine for a long time. I, mm -hmm. After I graduated, I chaired the botanical medicine department at Bastyr University for a number of years. and. Yeah really was it was and am quite taken with the power of, of plant medicine. Mm. So I think that that, to me, was sort of always the core of, of what got me excited about naturopathic medicine in particular. And then I think just the philosophy of being able to, to take the time with people to really get to know them, to treat them as a whole person, to go on this investigative quest to try to understand the underlying cause of their maladies and to treat it at that causal level, um, to, to do our best to educate the patient so that they can be a proactive participant in their care. I mean, all of that just really got me excited and is so different than the way conventional medicine is practiced, at least in the States for lots of reasons, most of which are not the individual doctor's fault, but more the system's fault. And, yeah. Um, you know, so I think it was just such a great thing to be able to step outside of that system and still be involved in healthcare. Um, and, you know, the, that, so I've been out in practice for about 21 years. The second half of my career has been focused exclusively on cancer care. And that, that's been very exciting too, and quite an evolution in our profession in the United States, because, uh, naturopathic oncology is actually the first uh, clinical board specialty within the profession. So uh -huh. um, for those of us who qualify, we um, can sit for another board examination. And if we pass that, then we are eligible to receive fellowship status, essentially, as a, a naturopathic oncologist, which is both exciting and um, really has helped to evolve the standard of practice, if you will, for naturopathic mm. oncology. So so tell me about this because um, you share your personal experience and, and to me this sets you apart from many other practitioners because you know what the patient goes through. Did you have cancer before or after you were interested in supporting cancer patients? Uh, that's a really good question. So actually I... Um, 
uh, about 10 years, 11 years ago, I was given the opportunity to work at a hospital that specializes in cancer care. It's a hospital system in the United States, and I had both an administrative job and a clinician's job, so it was just a great opportunity for me to learn hospital medicine, work side-by-side with oncologists, and do naturopathic care in that setting. And during the time I was working there, I, and I was there for about five years, but during the time I was working there, my father was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, yeah. and um, fortunately, he outlived his prognosis quite significantly and really enjoyed a very healthy and well life. But that was, uh, you know, really taught me a lot about cancer from a very different perspective. And then I left that hospital setting and went to practice in an outpatient basis, so I, and which is what I do currently, and uh, was, was doing that among some other things. And then my, I myself was diagnosed with breast cancer, which hmm. was uh, kind of a shocker, but uh, it set me on another course of deep learning. Hmm. And, you know, from that, it really grown in my understanding of what this disease, the impact this disease has on people's lives. So I was actually specializing in cancer before I was diagnosed myself, but that diagnosis has certainly changed the way that I both approach the disease, work with people diagnosed with the disease, evaluate what's important in you know my therapeutics, mm. and um, so it's been a gift, a hard one, but but a gift nonetheless. Yeah, because um, I got to say it was it was the thing that made you shine uh, when I first met you at the IFM 2010. I'll always remember you standing up there saying to all of you people that say to to your patients, don't eat ice cream, listen to this. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. I, if ice cream's all you can eat, then get it into you. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I think sometimes, you know, as as in, as natural practitioners, we, we have a lot of ideals about health. And, you know, these ideals are we hold tightly and they're, they're very valuable and they're important and they're... They're right, but we also have to be flexible yeah. with our ideals. And there are certainly times when that flexibility is the necessity. Yes, that's <laughs> like when people are in the midst of, of chemotherapy sometimes. Yeah. And this is going to be something very exciting because you'll be coming back to Australia in July and you'll be delivering a, a one-day intensive cancer support class to various centres around Australia. So i I got to say, I can't wait to welcome you back. Um, but I need to ask you, what sort of things will you be covering during that intensive class? Yeah, I'm very excited for this and I'm only sorry we only have a day because um, there's so much to cover, but it's going to be a, a, as we say in the States, it's going to be a roller coaster ride. We're mm. going to take people through fast and furious. And the intent is to start the day off with um, sort of a, an updated understanding of carcinogenesis because there's some, the research is just pouring out and we're learning, we're discovering new things all the time. Um, you know, like the most recent thing I've been looking at are these little messenger RNA molecules that get that cells spit out in these little exosome envelopes and they end up carrying message messages to the to the cells around them and those cells repackage those same materials and send them back to the cells and cause that cell to behave in certain ways I mean that's just fascinating stuff and that lies now at the heart of our at least as part of our understanding of, of cancer causation and tumor development so we're just learning all sorts of new things so I'm going to cover some of that um, and that's important because there are implications for how we as natural practitioners 
uh, approach cancer, the more we understand, you know, what it is and how it develops. And then we're going to go in and we're going to tackle the four most common cancers. So we're going to go through breast cancer, prostate cancer, colon cancer, and lung cancer. Hmm. And with each of those, I'm going to try to give a very um, thorough update so that people get in sort of feel informed about the current conventional attributes of treatment. But then mostly we're going to spend some time on the the natural approach and highlight some key therapies. And throughout the day, we're going to have some Q&A sessions, and then we're going to end with a, a panel discussion. So there should uh, should be a lot of interactivity, and at the same time, hopefully people will leave with a very usable manual that they can put into practice the next day. Hmm. So, Lisa, a, a little bit of a rhetorical question, but if natural therapies are so broad in their approach, why do we need to differentiate between the treatment of various cancers? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And um, I think the answer is, I guess I would say on two levels. Number one, oncology is a is a very highly evidence-based disease so that there's, there's a lot at stake. In many cases, the patient's life is mm. at stake. Mm. And oncologists, uh, generally speaking, are a bit reticent to take people too far off the the proven path. Yeah. So when we come in with in, with therapies that we want to integrate into that course of treatment, it's important to do that with a very good clinical basis for these therapies. So sometimes the specificity of treatments for each cancer type is really just where the clinical evidence has been has has proven that that therapy has some value. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean it not applicable to other cancers, but we may just know it's applicable to certain cancers. Yeah. So that, that's part of the answer. I think the other part is that even though there are certain generalities across all tumor types, there are also specific nuances that are relevant to one cancer over another. For example, in breast cancer, there's a lot of um, crosstalk between the healthy stromal cells around a group of tumor cells and the cancer cells that is in that and that crosstalk is heavily influenced by insulin and insulin growth factor and the level of adipose tissue that somebody carries. That's not as relevant, at least as far as we know, in say lung cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then again in colon cancer, there's a, a, a whole different array or influences on inflammation, which result in you know activation of other pathways that. We, if we understand that, can apply therapies to in a, in a very specific format. So there is also a little bit of cancer-specific, um, I would guess I would say, tweaking or nuances that we can we can do. Yeah. Lise, what's the newest evidence with regards to uh, dietary interventions, both as lifestyle advice for people with cancer, but also as a therapy? Yeah, you know, there are some new understandings. Um I guess with lifestyle in general, there's an increasing understanding of the role of exercise and the specificity of the type of exercise that is most beneficial. And Mm. by that, I mean the degree of intensity of exercise. There's been some really good research on the level of vigorous exercise that seems to be most impactful, especially for certain cancers like prostate cancer. This is Um, is short-term intensive. We're getting a better, more clarity on how much exercise one needs to do and, um, you know, even to some extent when somebody needs to do the exercise. Um, so there's, that's certainly an emerging body of evidence. Uh, from a dietary standpoint, there's, I would say, emerging theories. I think there's still a lot that's 
um, that's in research stage and it's not been, you know, super well validated from a clinical data perspective, but nonetheless, at least in the States, a lot of practitioners are already applying some of these dietary strategies. So, you know, top of the list would be things like the ketogenic diet. Um, there's also a lot of research now on the role of insulin growth factor one mm -hmm. in tumor genesis and the influence that various um, low carbohydrate diets and or diets that include some degree of fasting or caloric restriction. And on that note, there's several clinical trials ongoing right now in the States that are looking at uh, calorically restricted diets at the same time that somebody is receiving chemotherapy as a strategy to minimize side effects. So I think that those are probably the more uh, recent, I, I guess, dietary strategies mm. that are under investigation. And of course, there's always, you know, more studies that come out on individual foods and nutrients that yeah. are exciting. Lise, there's controversy over the term antioxidant in how we used to think they acted. And the new evidence suggests they don't actually donate an electron to never be used again, but rather we use these compounds as redox substrates. What's the newest evidence? And, and should we perhaps be thinking of different ways to term these food uh, foods that we used to term antioxidants. Yeah, you know, I'm, I think that th we've gotten ourselves in a whole heap of trouble by categorizing a hugely diverse and heterogeneous group of compounds as antioxidants and where, you know, in fact, many of those compounds, as you suggest, are redox um, compounds so that they help to maintain the redox balance of the cell. But even, even a classic antioxidant, uh, something like glutathione, mm -hmm. is actually you know, has very diverse functions in the cell, many of which uh, support the health of the cell um, and could even have direct, you know, anti-cancer effects, uh, primarily, for example, on, in the role of, in the glutathione's role as a mitochondrial um, resuscitant, as a protectant, and the mitochondria really determine the fate of a cell in many regards. And then there's I think as we understand more and more about um, how signal transduction happens from the surface of the cell all the way through to the nucleus, we are beginning to understand that when a cell is exposed to oxidative stress, there are multiple reactions that happen sim simultaneously, some of which activate so-called antioxidant responses and some of which activate inflammatory oxidative responses. Mm -hmm. And it's really this very delicate balance between those responses that seems to be of more criticality in, in understanding what cells are under duress and which ones um, might actually be rather robust in the face of oxidative stress. And then, of course, we have to overlay the continuum of time on this because mm -hmm. um, particularly when somebody is thinking about this in the perspective of cancer, you know, the role of oxidation during active chemotherapy or radiation takes on a very different flavor than it does, of course, if we're talking about prevention or even recovery from those treatments. And, you know, the actual lifetime of the so-called antioxidative molecules themselves come into play. So, you know, this is a, a very complicated, um, very nuanced, complex discussion. And I think that that's good because what that does is really disallow us to make these gross generalizations, which many people still make along the lines of, 
you know, don't take any antioxidants during treatment. That's mm. just not serving anyone. No. It doesn't mean anything because mm. of all these this complexity underneath. So I think that in many ways, naturopaths and other integrative practitioners are the perfect group to really dive into this because we like mechanisms. We like understanding why things happen and... Um, this is a great opportunity to do just that. Yeah, I think I think once we do away with uh, that closeted mindset of what an antioxidant is, we can then start to really engage in, well, what do these compounds do? Right. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, even the role of, um, you know, my, my one of my very favourite compounds or classes of compounds are uh, polyphenolics or bioflavonoids. And... If you look at bioflavonoids, they're, they're often referred to as, as having antioxidative effects. But in reality, they actually introduce oxidative stress mm. intracellularly. And in doing that, they tend to, though, um, create a, a response on the part of the cell that, that favors the uh, activation of NERF2, which is an antioxidative kind of uh, determinant. Yep. So they end up having a bit of a overall antioxidative effect, but in reality, they do that through an oxidative stress mechanism. So that's just one example of how things can get very muddled if we just sort of pick one piece out of its very wide spectrum of actions. Yeah. So you're referring there to the mitochondrial uh, senescence, if you like, or hijacking um, of by the cancer cells. Um, and if you sort of provoke the mitochondria with an oxidative stress, that it sort of kickstarts it back into its normal cycle. Is that what you're talking about? Uh, no, not so much. Well, that, there is that too, but um, with flavonoids, I was more specifically referring to uh, these, the, these NERF2 and NF-kappa-B are kind of held docked in the cytoplasm. Yeah. And under oxidative stress, they undock and they you know, dissociate, they travel through the nuclear membrane, and then they bind to certain parts of the DNA and in turn code certain genes. And NERF2 tends to code antioxidative genes and NF-kappa-B more pro-inflammatory genes. To your point, NERF2 has been implicated in um, restoring the mitochondrial um, uh, sort of health, I guess, for lack of a better word, or the the antioxidative potential, keeping the mitochondria uh, more able to respond to oxidative stress that the cell encounters, encounters and uh, restore itself from that oxidative stress. So, yeah, there is that connectivity to the mitochondria, which actually is a good point that you made because mitochondria are, you know, again, emerging as such a critical player in understanding the fate of a cell. Mm. So, you know, understanding how to keep our mitochondria healthy is becoming more and more critical. Yeah. There's a poster child of natural cancer support, and that's curcumin. What's the latest news with curcumin? I, I, I read recently that MD Anderson Cancer Center was uh, undertaking a trial. Yeah, and actually that's uh, just to, to bridge our last question with this one, and then I'll, I'll get out of the world of molecular biology. But um, <laughs> one of the, the reasons why curcumin is so effective is that it's a very effective blocker of that NF-kappa-B inflammatory mm. response and at the same time it stimulates that NERF2 kind of anti-inflammatory response. So because of that action, that dual action, it has a lot of implication and a lot of uh, potential benefit and it's been studied now in dozens of clinical trials with really interesting results ranging from <clears throat> being an antidepressant in one trial yeah. 
to um, having very effective uh, anti-inflammatory effects in you know various retinal diseases and ocular diseases, all the way through to having some suggestive impacts as an anti-cancer agent. And there are more trials that continue to be done. Um, there's a lot of different formulations of curcumin. Uh, there was the most recent trial I'm aware of with curcumin was one that was just released from. Uh, I can't remember the university, but um, they compared actually various formulations of curcumin one to another. Hmm. <clears throat> and although there's still some questions about the dosages being used that weren't exactly equivalent, it appeared in this trial that the theracumin uh, had you know, significantly greater bioavailability than any of the other curcumin ingredients. You know, so that's a good trial. There still needs to be more trials done on the that kind of comparison, but at least we're really starting to get specific about our curcumin. Are there any real contraindications that you've seen with curcumin? You know, there's a couple of um, there's a couple of chemotherapeutics that it's not to be used with. Cytoxin is one, or cyclophosphamide is the other name. Um, the action of curcumin actually is. Uh, directly interferes with one of the main actions of cyclophosphamide in inducing cell death. So that that combination should be avoided. Um, there is some theoretical, uh, and I say theoretical because it hasn't really borne, we haven't seen this clinically, but curcumin could interfere with, with anticoagulant medications, yeah. and so I'm usually pretty cautious there. Um, but as far as disease states, you know, I don't really know of any contraindicated diseases. Uh, I've been recently annoyed by one of the online medical reference sites stating that curcumin should be avoided in estrogenic cancers because it may have an estrogenic effect. And I can find zero data to support this. Even their reference that they gave um, was really an in vitro type of thing. There was nothing in vivo. Have you ever, ever seen, heard or had referred to um, curcumin being contraindicated in breast cancer or any other estrogenic type of cancer? No, no, I have not. And like you, I I would be very surprised if it has any any clinically relevant estrogenic activity. I mean, look, anything in a petri dish can probably at a high enough concentration, and especially if it's a complex substance like a botanical, bind to estrogen receptors. But that has no that means nothing as far as whether it's actually estrogenic or even phytoestrogenic in the body. Hmm. And I just don't see that with curcumin. Liz, mushrooms, one of my favourite interventions. What's been your experience and tell me what the new evidence shows? Yeah, mushrooms are one of my favourites. They are definitely a go-to and they should be, I think, on everybody's shortlist. Uh, they're, you know, just, they're so impactful to obviously immune function, but most importantly, the holy grail of all, survival. Um, in fact, there was a, um, a small meta-analysis which was done, actually uh, 13 trials, and these were trials of um, using Coriolis or turkey tail mushroom or PSK, which is the extracted compound from Coriolis. And what they found out was that overall survival at five years was improved with a statistic of a 9% absolute reduction in five-year mortality which means that only that there was a, one additional patient alive for every 11 patients treated 
so the number needed to treat was 11, yeah. which is actually a very low number. Yeah, it's um, huge. And in oncology especially, a drug that had those statistics would be a block, block, blockbuster drug for sure. So, you know, I think that's just an example of some of the data that is available to support our natural therapies. And um, mushrooms have so many other benefits. They're natural aromatase inhibitors, which has certainly application for people with estrogen receptor positive tumors. And as we know, of course, they're just really good immune stimulants, so they can help reduce risk of infection. So, yeah, I'm, I'm all about mushrooms. Mm. Do you tend to stick to the patented forms of each type of mushroom? Like you've got your um, activated hexose correlated compound, you've got PSK, you've got a uh, maitake defraction. There's all of these various patented uh, forms of mushrooms. Do you yeah. tend to stick to those or do you use the whole mushrooms? Or You know, I guess I have to say I tend to go towards what you call, the, I get, we call them branded in this country, but you call them patented um, mushroom extracts yeah. uh, more often just because I think that the, <clears throat> usually if somebody is in a situation where I really am going to, I'm trying to, to augment their overall survival, I tend to go towards um, those ingredients. However, that being said, they are expensive. So I often find patients get pocketbook fatigue after a while. And in that case, I'm very comfortable uh, moving into whole mushroom extracts. And there's some really wonderful whole mushroom extracts available that I think are, you know, quite potent as well. So um, I, I guess, honestly, I'd have to say that I use both and it probably is pretty situational. Yeah. So just a, a question before my wrap-up with you is, what other things do you place on your shortlist? Yeah, that's a good question. Gosh, um, well, on my shortlist are <clears throat> things, and of course this is hard to answer only because, you know, am I talking about people in active treatment or people that have finished treatment and what kind of cancer, but we'll just go ahead and generalize. Yeah. And, you know, the things I find myself recommending the most often for my patients throughout all of that um, are melatonin. And I recommend high doses of melatonin, actually up to 20 milligrams, which I think is still an issue in Australia. But um, there's a lot of data on the benefits of melatonin throughout the continuum of cancer care. Medicinal mushrooms, for sure, are on my short list. And then one or two plant extracts that are high in flavonoids. So, you know, on that in that would be things like turmeric, standardized to curcumin, green tea extract, quercetin, resveratrol. Um, all of these are, you know, beneficial in different situations. Um, and then vitamin D is definitely on my short list. You know, great data coming out on vitamin D in all phases of treatment. And I guess I could go on and on, but then it wouldn't be a short list, so I'll stop there. <laughs> So, Lise, to my last question now, um, when you come out to Australia, what sort of things can the the attendees expect to take away from the day? Because it's going to be a full day, eight to six. Yeah, it's going to be a full day. So, first of all, um, I would say that my goal is that people will leave this workshop with uh, tools that they can put into their practice the next day that this will be very clinically relevant and that the tools are going to be the tools of a greater understanding. We're going to do a deep dive into oncology, so they should feel really immersed in that world and, um, you know, their, their clinical acumen should be sharpened as a result. They should also be able to leave this workshop with, with tools that they can 
put into place for people that come into their practice with the cancers that we're going to discuss and that they'll be able to have some good therapies that they can recommend. They'll know why they're recommending them. They'll know how to recommend them. Um, I think that the day is going to be fast-paced, so people who come certainly should not expect to take snooze. It should be very uh, engaging, and that's partly because there's going to be some Q&A time. There's going to be some case studies that we're going to go through. There's going to be some discussion and um, a panel discussion at the end, so we'll learn from each other. I, th- I think it's going to be a great, great day. I'm really hoping that uh, you know people leave feeling very empowered, very excited to meet the needs of this population of people who we can so beautifully help and um, they all all that all that we need is to get them into our practices and provide them with our tools. Lise thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your clinical expertise which is so important it's such an, an interesting important topic so I thank you once again. Well thank you I'm really looking forward to coming and I'm looking forward to seeing you as well. <laughs> this is FX Radio and I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook.